Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Privacy is one of the fundamental issues in tech policy, and yet, in the United States, progress on this issue has been elusive at the federal level, even as Europe has forged ahead with its General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR, and now the Digital Markets Act which will reinforce the privacy protections afforded EU citizens under GDPR with new provisions. And yet there are bills before Congress that could change things here, such as the Banning Surveillance Advertising Act, which was introduced earlier this year. At the time, Senator Cory Booker, a Democrat from New Jersey, said that, quote, the hoarding of people's personal data not only abuses privacy, but also drives the spread of misinformation, domestic extremism, racial division, and violence. To talk more about the history of how we ended up with an internet bought and paid for by surveillance advertising and what might drive reform, I spoke with two experts in the field, Dr. Natalie Marischal and Dr. Matt Crane. My name is Natalie Marischal. I'm the Senior Policy Manager at Ranking Digital Rights. And I'm Matthew Crane, an Associate Professor in Media and Communication at Miami University. My book just came out in September. It's called Profit Over Privacy, How Surveillance Advertising Conquered the Internet, from University of Minnesota Press. So Matt, you offer a kind of history or even a prehistory of our current internet uh, ecosystem and how it is financed by advertising. Where do you think that story begins? Right. So the, one of the major challenges of any kind of historical work is to like put a line in the sand and say, this is where this begins because someone will inevitably come and say, actually, there's roots to this that go back much further, right? So you have to kind of pick up place. And um, I really looked at the 1990s and the dot-com era of when not only kind of surveillance advertising or data-driven advertising begins to take shape in kind of a proto form, but really when the nation decided, or I should say the elite policymakers and the folks that they spoke with to make decisions, decided uh, what kind of policy and legal framework are we going to have in the United States for this brand new technology that no one knew quite sure what it was going to be called the internet. So we kind of start in the 1990s with the Clinton administration, and that's where the book kind of picks up when they decided to privatize the net and turn it into a kind of like nebulous, uh, turn it from a kind of nebulous government-sponsored, university-kind-of-sponsored scientific resource uh, for sharing information into a new domain for commercial development that was going to kind of spread throughout the economy and not only kind of revitalize the flagging United States economy, we're kind of in a recession when Clinton first gets elected, but also kind of raise the country's standing um, in the kind of global capitalism to kind of renew America's relationship with computers and the cutting edge of technology. So that's really where the story begins. Now, are there a couple of key policy decisions that you think really set us on that trajectory? Right. So I'm kind of, you know, public policy in the 1990s around internet was 
fast and furious. And it's very important to think about what was done and also what was not done by our legislators and our uh, elected officials. So the, the actual privatization of the pipes, uh, uh, you know, the internet infrastructure started with H. W., uh, George H.W. Bush, but was kind of carried forward with Clinton. So that's really kind of the first moment when we just basically said, OK, we're going to turn this over to the private sector. It's not going to be you know, run by the education department or it's not going to be brought into any kind of public service. The idea here is we're going to privatize and let markets and our you know telecommunications companies and whatever companies could be possibly built on this thing we're going to let them run the show and this kind of commitment to private sector leadership over the popularization and dissemination of the internet, that's really kind of the first kind of key inflection point. And then from there, you get uh, further kind of policy debates around particularly, is advertising going to become a fundamental funding mechanism for media and communications on the internet as it starts to take shape later on in the 1990s? So there's a lot of particular uh, policy battles and kind of public debates around those questions that we could you know dive into in more in more detail if you want to. And Natalie, you looked at the sort of political economy around the internet. What do you make of it, how it looked in the 1990s and into the early aughts, um, both here and perhaps around the globe? I think what's really interesting about much of the internet economy is that you're really talking about companies that have two different sets of products and two different sets of markets. Uh, and they the one that they actually make money from, which is largely advertising, uh, surveillance advertising specifically, they try to talk about as little as possible. You know, for, for a very long time until really the past few years, they would just kind of wave their hands and say, oh, well, we, we make money from advertising, but don't worry about it. Right. And really focus uh, their emphasis on uh, all these amazing end user facing consumer products that we were able to use, quote unquote, for free, meaning without paying the money from uh, from our bank accounts, but instead engaging in a transaction that we didn't really realize was was happening of uh, our data, our attention and so on that they then used to, to transform into uh, revenue from advertising. Now, of course, we know this, right? Uh, We know this actively in a way that maybe before we just kind of knew it subconsciously, but didn't realize the meaning of it. And uh, that's due in large part to uh, to work of of scholars like Matt Crane, but also uh, Shoshana Zuboff and a a raft of other authors out there. And so what's been uh, really rewarding uh, to me as someone who somewhat awkwardly inhabits both the scholar and activist arenas is uh, to see how uh, how this analysis and how, um, well, first this empirical fact-finding and then the analysis has made its way from, uh, from the academy into uh, civil society circles and then into policymaking circles. And where we're now at a point where policymakers in the U.S., uh, in the EU, uh, and beyond are poised to uh, finally take legislative and regulatory action. And this is something that's really been a long time coming, right? Uh, Matt, I think in, I think in your book, uh, you talk about the how we, we almost got uh, privacy legislation at the end of the 90s. There were, uh, you know, a lot of conversations happening in, in Congress and in all sorts of hearings and everything. And we did end up with, with COPPA, which protects, to an extent, data privacy for uh, for children under 13. And there was kind of a promise of, oh, well, we'll do children now and we'll get to the rest of y'all later. 
of course, it's it's 25 years later and we still haven't gotten there. Uh, but that policy conversation was was also derailed by 9-11. Right. Uh, we were having all these uh, all these conversations about fair information practices and what data collection should be permitted versus not permitted and data minimization and yeah, use limitation and all, all kinds of things like that. And then 9-11 happens and the, there's a complete paradigm shift uh, away from privacy protection and towards, no, what the, we actually need is total information awareness. We need to, uh, to, to collect it all, surveil it all, know it all, right, as, as the we learned was with an internal NSA motto, um, thanks to Ed Snowden. And at the same time, Google and then other Silicon Valley firms uh, were developing a same kind of ethos, uh, but not for the purpose of national security, for the purpose of, again, generating revenue through uh, through targeted advertising. So it's it's really um, the fact that it's taken this long to to get here is is really kind of amazing. And it's really important to think of it in the context of all the geopolitical goings on of the past 25 years. My head's about to roll off my shoulders. I'm nodding so hard over here, Natalie, uh, listening to you uh, kind of explain all that. Because uh, if I may, like a sub kind of like theme of what you were just talking about is that, you know, one of the big kind of takeaways from all this historical research that I did to write this kind of, you know, history of the 1990s is that, you know, we didn't suddenly wake up in 2018 and find uh, the Cambridge Analytica scandal plastered all over the news and everyone suddenly decided we cared about privacy, like in the United States. And we were, you know, it wasn't like a sudden uh, awakening to the dangers of potential negative social outcomes from an entire internet economy based on around advertising and based around indiscriminate data collection of, you know, internet users, right? So there were a lot of awareness and a lot of conversation, perhaps not at the, you know, mass public level, but even, you know, you go back and you read Pew uh, research polling data that ask people, you know, at the dawn of the internet, you know, what are your concerns? People were uncomfortable with, you know, putting their credit card information online. People were uncomfortable about seeing uh, advertisements that were increasingly tailored to them, even into the 1990s. It wasn't a question of like, we weren't aware that privacy harms are in the offing if we develop a surveillance-based advertising economy. It was a question of what are we going to do about it? And what you know, institutions and what structures are we going to put in place to sort this out? And the decision that was made by policymakers in close conversation with uh, marketers and advertising agencies and, you know, the earliest kind of ad tech platforms was that we're going to let the market sort it out. We are going to adopt a policy of that we still are living with today called notice and choice, where essentially privacy was going to be negotiated among individual users and the companies that they interact with online. And if you didn't like someone's, uh, if you didn't like a company's privacy practices, you would simply not engage with that company and you would go to a different uh, company and you would, you know, make choices based on your privacy preferences. And as long as companies disclose their, you know, data practices to you, then the free market and competition would sort out a market for privacy. And those who valued it would be able to uh, achieve interactions without surveillance. And those who were fine with it, they could do, you know, find a, a solution that met their needs. So in retrospect, it's pretty silly to think that that's how privacy markets are going to uh, sort out and actually produce benefits. And there were folks on the ground, you know, early, early on in this, in these discussions that saw this very well. And so this idea that, 
We're going to let the private sector lead. We're going to let markets sort this out. And we're just going to let, you know, notify people and let them make decisions in the marketplace really was kind of a facile understanding of like how information markets work and the history of, you know, telecommunications and media, which is all about concentration of power and, you know, the biggest players trying to avoid competition. And so that, that now we're kind of left in a situation today where, you know, yeah, we have choices to make. We could choose between, you know, using Google or using Bing, but they both work, operate on the exact same uh, business model, right? And then, you know, really kind of dovetails into this idea of is competition a necessary component of, of a political solution to all of this? Absolutely. But is it the only thing or is it sufficient? Probably not. Uh, there was a great deal of competition in the 1990s about who could surveil us the best. <laughs> so a competitive market unhindered by other policy goals that value other social norms besides making as much money as possible and, and vaulting the United States to the you know, the height of the world stage of you know, this new kind of informationalized capitalism. Bring those this, those values into the policy discussion, and we could potentially be, you know, having a very different type of conversation today. I don't want to take too big a detour into this, but one thing that you talk about in the book that seems to have roared back a bit is the concern about kids and privacy, uh, children and privacy, particularly. You have a section called Spy Kids, uh, where you talk about, you know, concerns that the uh, CME and FTC were raising around uh, children and privacy back in the late 90s. And we really seems like we're, we're seeing a kind of resurgence of that particular point of view. I mean, not least of which, because some of the same lawmakers that were around talking about these issues then are still the same people that are taking another crack at this uh, today, I, I suppose. But what do you make of, of this dialogue around, around children and privacy um, and its role in the broader history? Very interested to hear what Natalie has to say about this also. You know, the COPPA law, it only exists because there was a very small and dogged group of policy activists, the Center for Media Education, like started researching this in, in 1995. And they decided that this was the low-hanging fruit to get people in Washington to really care, right? Save the children. And so this focus around children is absolutely warranted, absolutely justified. But like like Natalie said, you know, it never should have kind of stopped with them. And the kind of implementation here was, again, going back to this idea of notice and choice. It was about obtaining parental consent. Uh, and, and as long as, you know, parental consent was somehow given, the data collection practices were fine. Yeah, I think that's inadequate for, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, first of all, you know, as you've been as we've been saying, putting the onus on the individual or in the case of, of, of children on their parents to protect them from harms arising from commercial activity is is something that we don't do in, in other areas, right? We don't we don't review car seats for, for safety ourselves. We don't check, you know, we're not responsible for thinking about drug interactions before we take medication or give it to our kids individuals just aren't qualified to do that, right? Like you, that you need regulatory agencies to, to protect people. But beyond that, what's really worrying to me is how often uh, one uh, focusing on children's rights serves as a way to kind of end the conversation, as you were saying, right? And that's why I'm very concerned about uh, the idea that President Biden put forward in the State of the Union, and that is uh, being batted around in Brussels in the context of the DSA uh, trilogue about banning surveillance advertising for kids, because the idea is we're going to keep it for everybody else, 
right? And so it's a way to just kind of offer a fake compromise that just serves corporate interests, right? And doesn't and doesn't actually protect people's rights more broadly. But also what's really worrying is uh, how often children's rights is actually code for parents' rights. Uh, and we see this in the conversation around online harms, you know, and the content regulation more than about privacy, that uh, it's really about giving parents the ability to control what their children can, can see and, and do online. And I, I understand where that impetus comes from. You want to protect children from seeing, you know, content that's too mature for them or, or so on. But, but what about all the kids who... Uh, need for their mental health, for their own safety to have access to content about sexual health, or that affirms that they're not, you know, evil because uh, they're attracted to someone of a different gender than who their parents think they should be attracted to, and so on. And so it's really important to not conflate children's rights with parents' rights to control their children. So I do want to stay with uh, just the kind of current political environment at the moment and and some of the policy options that appear to be on the table. We still don't have any kind of fundamental privacy legislation that's on the table here in the United States. We're seeing some of the individual state legislatures move forward uh, with a patchwork of ideas. Europe seems to be full steam ahead on the Digital Services Act. Of course, they've already got GDPR in place. Um, And now, now there are new legislative proposals like the Banning Surveillance Advertising Act here in the States. Is there any chance that anything will happen in the United States in in the near term? It doesn't seem like this particular Congress will advance uh, anything that's privacy specific. What's really interesting about privacy and big tech regulation more broadly is that it's one of the few policy areas right now that is not actually a strictly partisan issue where you have, you know, Democrats on one side and Republicans on the other side. And like, there's such a wide gulf in between that there's, uh, you know, the only way you're going to get anything through is if one, one side just has overwhelmingly has the, the, the numbers and in a 50, 50 Senate. And, you know, with what we know about uh, the, the filibuster and uh, certain democratic senators attachment to, uh, to that tradition, that's very unlikely in, in a lot of areas, but With tech regulation, including privacy, that's not really the case. The parties are actually much closer to each other than big tech and big tech lobbyists wish they were. And uh, Meta in particular is putting a lot of lobbying muscle into convincing uh, Republicans and Democrats that that they're much further apart than they actually are. And privacy, you know, the for the past couple of years, the big bones of contention have been private right of action, uh, whether or not individuals can sue companies for violating privacy laws, or whether the, that's something that can only be brought forth by by state's attorney general or, you know, the DOJ and and so on, and uh, and state preemption with overall uh, Democrats wanting a private right of action and wanting the federal privacy law to to not preempt uh, state laws. And the reason for that is because a number of states have stronger civil rights protections than uh, than than the federal government does. Whereas on the other hand, big tech and, and its lobbyists and you know legislators who are aligned with them do want to see a preemption uh, a preemption uh, clause because they want to uh, to preempt the California statute CCPA and CPRA specifically. Now, what's going on in at the state level, uh, with the exception of, of California, and then there's also uh, a really strong uh, biometric privacy bill in Illinois, is that 
the big tech lobby is uh, really pushing aggressively for some really, really weak uh, privacy bills at the state level. There's one in Utah. There was one in Tennessee recently. Uh, there have been there have been a bunch of others that are just really, really weak. I think the strategy behind that is uh, to to set that as the ceiling for what should be replicated in a in a federal law. And so I really hope that that congressional leaders on both sides of the aisle can get their act together uh, as soon as possible and pass uh, a strong privacy. Uh, legislation at the federal level. Uh, and I do think that there's room to to negotiate if the bill is strong enough on both preemption and a private right of action. But the clock is ticking for this Congress. You know, and I know both parties want to be seen as the party that did big tech accountability. And the pr- there's a there's a really perverse incentive there to stop the other side from getting the win because you want to save the win for yourself. But I really think there's a way to characterize this as a as a as a win-win. And I, I'm hopeful that folks on, on Capitol Hill can find it. Yeah, I could pick up on just one thread there, which is Natalie was saying it's really important to pay close attention to what the tech companies themselves are saying in public. And then, you know, to the extent that we can understand the kind of rhetorical strategies that are being used on the non-public, like lobbying side. But uh, this, the legal scholar Chris Hoofnagel has this amazing paper called the denialist deck of cards where he kind of outlines like a bunch of different rhetorical strategies that, you know, tech companies, but more, you know, companies more broadly kind of cycle through when they are being faced with different types of regulatory scrutiny. And, um, you know, most of those cards that are played are things that like, you know, regulation is, is going to stall innovation. How can you regulate the internet? The internet, it moves too quickly. And by the time you get a law passed, everything will be different, right? And so there's all these different kind of, you know, it, it will kill the economy, it will kill jobs, it will do all of these things. And then at a certain point, you, get, you reach an inflection. And this happened with uh, Mark Zuckerberg and some other kind of big tech folks a, a couple of years ago now, where the conversation changed from, you know, regulation is antithetical to, you know, free market capitalism and will cause, cause all of these harms to. We're very interested in sitting down at the table and, and supporting regulation as long as the regulation is the right regulation. And, uh, you know, not that that this needs to be underscored probably for your audience, Justin, but, you know, we need to be very careful about any regulation that the tech companies themselves are publicly uh, supporting, because uh, what they will not do is uh, undermine their fundamental business model. And uh, I believe Natalie and I are both in agreement that that is exactly what must be changed. So um, yeah, just a little bit of uh, context there. Totally. Though at the same time, you have to be careful not to assume that everything big tech companies like is bad and everything they hate is good, because that's how you end up with nonsense. Like uh, like when Senator Blumenthal said that everybody who opposes the Earned Act is a big tech lobbyist. And uh, Justin was, uh, was kind enough to allow me to publish a piece on Tech Policy Press, highlighting that I am not, in fact, a big tech lobbyist. And I think Earned is really, really, really bad. Yes, that's a good point. Let's just talk a little bit about what are our real concerns here about privacy at this stage. I mean, you know, it being 2022, we know that we need data to power systems uh, that will hopefully help us address any number of human challenges, human problems, and that we have a lot of data that, of course, is in the public domain or perhaps should be in the public domain to help us think through the challenges we face. But, you know, it seems to me it's, it's kind of we're concerned about political manipulation, which, you know, Matt, you've written quite a lot about. 
Um, we're concerned about technology abetting authoritarianism, and we're concerned about technology companies uh, exploiting us uh, and other firms exploiting us in the economy and taking advantage of uh, a sort of asymmetry of knowledge about us as individuals or us as groups that gives them a kind of economic advantage uh, over us. Are there other concerns or fears that the two of you see as fundamental to this question? Yeah, I'll add another big concern about opportunity costs. Uh, I think it was uh, Zainab Tufeci who said uh, a number of years ago that the best minds of, of an entire generation are dedicated to making a, finding ways to make us click on ads more, right? And as long as that is such a, such a huge moneymaker, I was, I was reading a paper uh, the other day that argued that online targeted advertising has a profit margin of over 60%. Uh, and that that's why even companies like Apple and Amazon that already make gobs and gobs of money are investing in that area and are growing in that area because it's basically free money, right? For a relatively small investment, uh, you make uh, you you get huge returns. And uh, as long as 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 it continues to be that lucrative, people are going to continue working on this rather than working on climate change, for example, right? Uh, and so I think that's that's a really important thing to keep in mind, too. Yeah, I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. I think it's very important. I mean, I agree with what Natalie is saying totally. And I also think it's important to move the conversation beyond individual harms um, and think about this in a couple of ways. Right. So if we live in a so much of our lives are filtered through these communication technologies where surveillance is effectively inescapable. Uh, unless you're going to like go live in a cave somewhere, which is not a viable solution for most of us. So, you know, what are the negative social externalities that such a system creates? And there's a couple things that I just want to mention here. And one thing I'm very concerned about that uh, many others are as well is what has been happening with the accelerating decimation of journalism in the United States. You know, newspapers in particular, have, you know, are closing at an unprecedented rate. We have half the number of journalists in this country that we did, you know, 15 years ago or something. So that is extremely worrying. And it's not something that you can kind of map directly to a privacy harm to an individual person. But the fact that surveillance advertising, this business model, which is so heavily concentrated in the, in the hands of big companies, is a in some sense, zero-sum game with all, many, many publishers that are really struggling because now to be online and to be an ad-supported publication, you're essentially contracting out with large ad tech platforms who are taking a giant slice of an already diminishing uh, advertising pie. And so that is something to be very concerned about that is sort of you know a, a negative social externality that spins out of this business model, especially a very concentrated market. The second thing is that, you know, what kind of society are we creating in, in terms of our relationship to institutions? You know, one of the harms here is, is that this data is collected, it's combined with other data, inferences are made upon it, and it enters into contexts entirely divorced from the original site of collection. So we can be in situations where credit scores or credit opportunities or job opportunities or insurance uh, decisions are made based on a bunch of data that we really have no way to trace back to an original source. 
And uh, Daniel Solov is a, another legal scholar who writes about this very eloquently and just talks about how this is becoming uh, the norm where our relationships to the institutions and the uh, organizations that make decisions about us are Byzantine and impenetrable. And that just is a death sentence for any kind of accountability. We have to focus on individual harms and we have to focus on opportunity costs. We also have to think about, you know, more broadly, and this is a hard discussion to move into, you know, concrete policy decisions, but nonetheless, it's important. Like what kind of society is a surveillance society? I want to kind of move away from history and the present to just speculate on the future. And I had to say, um, Today, having just read the new VDEM Institute report on democracy uh, and how it's performing around the world, um, once again, another you know, set of bad figures, now 70% of the world's population living under autocracy, uh, up, I think, 21% from 10 years ago, just you know, a continued decline. If you look at the statistics in the Internet Freedom Report from Freedom House, digital authoritarianism on the rise tech firms, essentially, even Western tech firms abetting authoritarianism. I was struck by this New York Times story earlier this week about Nokia, Finnish telecom company, respecting the sanctions uh, on Russia and pulling out of of business, but leaving behind an enormous surveillance apparatus uh, that it had helped the Russian state build. I'm finding it slightly hard to be long-term optimist at the moment about where we're headed on these issues. Uh, I'm wondering if uh, if either of you can can give me any optimism uh, or or help me speculate more specifically about where we might get to. The trends are not looking great in many areas, as you say. I mean, it'd be foolish to to disregard that. I mean, you know, from a historical perspective, I think one of the lessons that comes out is that the system we have now is not a natural system that was you know created. Uh, by any kind of like deity or process of evolution. It was a result of human beings making choices, you know, in particular contexts. And so there's always an element of agency here. And, you know, we can never count out the ability to intervene in processes, even those that seem like they're well underway. And, you know, there's always kind of the hope and the, the kind of responsibility to build or at least try to build a future that we want. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, I think of optimism as kind of a radical choice, you know, in the same way that, you know, you have to choose to love someone every day. I think you have to choose to be optimistic. And if you don't choose to be optimistic, there's absolutely no way that you're going to win. You know, uh, I have conversations at least once a week with, you know, whether it's someone who works in in civil society or in policy or, you know, someone who uses the Internet and is part of society. And, you know, they'll say, oh, oh, well, you know, the the work that you're doing is is really interesting. But, you know, that's never going to happen. Right. None of that is ever going to happen. And my answer is always, well, not with that attitude. It's not. I don't spend a lot of time trying to persuade people that they're wrong to be to be pessimistic. But. For me uh, and, and for my team, we, we choose to be optimists, which doesn't mean that we're are ignorant of the data that we see and the, the trends uh, in, in front of us, but the arc of history is long. And I, I like to remind myself of Ursula K. Le Guin's quote uh, that 
you know, the, the, I, I'm going to mangle it, but it's something about how we live under capitalism and in our case under surveillance capitalism. And it's hard to imagine life without it um, or life outside of it. But that was true of the divine right of Kings too. And you have to choose to be optimistic and to keep fighting. What would you tell the listener to do at the moment? What would you leave them with as an action that they could take, which might lead towards that more optimistic future that you see? Think critically about your own use of of social media, of various services that are supported by surveillance advertising, both in your personal life and, and in your job, which isn't to say that everybody needs to get off all social media platforms overnight and that we should all quit our jobs if they have anything to do with with using those platforms. Um, but to think critically about it, like why why are you using this or that platform? What is the benefit that you get out of it? Um, do, are you really as trapped as as you think you might be? Maybe, you know, take a break from it for a week or two and see see what you miss about it, if anything, or uh, resolve that, you know, you're only going to, you're, you don't need to have it on your phone, right? But so you're not tempted to check it every time you're standing in line somewhere, uh, but you'll keep an account because maybe you needed to receive information about some neighborhood group that you're in or, or something like that. Uh, and, and take control of, of all that. Um, you know, it's, it's, pretty much impossible to completely protect yourself from being surveilled by by the the surveillance advertising apparatus. I've spent a long time trying to do it. It's not actually doable, which is why we need legislation and and regulation here. Uh, But there are steps that you can take. And uh, and I would encourage people to, to do that, reclaim what agency we have in the status quo and be assured that there are plenty of people like me, like, like Matt, like a lot of people that, that we work with who are fighting in different ways to uh, make the vision of a, of a privacy respecting internet a reality. I was just saying, Matt, you end your book with a call for an alternative political vision for the internet. Is there something you think the listener could do to get there? Well, that's a pretty tall order. I mean, I think, you know, try to think about areas of life that, we've decided maybe markets aren't the only or most efficient way to structure. And I think privacy might be one of those areas. As for what you can do on your own level, I think everything Natalie said was, was spot on. And also, you know, maybe support your local journalist. Uh, if there's a, if, or, or no, a, an outlet that you uh, like and, you know, Give them some money, right? The reason why their uh, journalism is is in such a struggle is that we have the kind of expectation that it's ad supported, and that it shouldn't be up to individuals to pay for it. If you have the capacity to, you know, support alternative uh, business models, then I think that's uh, a nice, like, concrete way to, like, you know, take a small bit of action in your daily life just to, to kind of make the alternative world that you want to see uh, out there. Well, I thank you both for speaking with me today. Thank you. It's wonderful. Thanks. Always great talking to both of you. That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to my guests. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.